Statesman Journal's Explore Oregon podcast. I'm your host, Zachary Ness, and in each episode, we highlight Oregon's most beautiful and interesting places. All right, now I'm going to talk briefly about the sponsors that make this podcast possible. And keep in mind that all the money from these sponsors goes towards hiring outdoor journalism interns. This year, we've hired three interns and paid them $15 per hour. And over the course of this podcast, we've hired seven different interns, not only helping us report on Oregon's outdoors, but also teaching young college students journalistic skills that they can carry forward. Plus, it's a pretty fun internship anyway. They get to travel outdoors, report about the environment. It's a good gig, and these sponsors make it possible. So anyway, I just wanted to mention that before we get rolling. So this part you'll recognize. This podcast is brought to you by the American Forest Resource Council supporting responsible forestry on public lands throughout the Pacific Northwest. Learn more at amforest.org. We're also supported by Visit Tillamook Coast, a land of ocean and forest just an hour from the Willamette Valley that is focusing this summer on the best way to care for its forests, beaches, and waterways through a promotion that emphasizes cleaning up and leaving no trace. We'll dive into how they do that just a little bit later in the show. Finally, the Oregon Parks and Recreation Department invites Oregonians to explore parks this fall and winter to experience the beauty of those seasons. If you're camping, remember to get firewood from sources local to your destination to avoid bringing invasive insects, such as the devastating emerald ash borer, into parks. This will help preserve the health of Oregon's forests for seasons to come. Learn more about protecting Oregon's ash trees at state parks, Oregon.gov. All right, in today's episode, we're headed to the vast dunes of the Oregon coast to talk about all things sandboarding. It's a thrilling sport that has grown out of the town of Florence, spearheaded by my guest today, Dr. Dune. But first, here's some guitar music to get us rolling. All right, in today's episode, I've got a great interview with Lon Beal, a godfather of sandboarding in Oregon and across the world. It's a really fun interview that dives into the history of the sport and all the really thrilling things about it. However, in the interview, my audio is a little distorted. I don't want to name names, but two mischievous daughters of mine were playing with my microphone and turned one of the dials way up, and I didn't notice before recording this podcast, so such as parent life. I still think this makes for a great listen, so hopefully you forgive a little bit of that distortion and enjoy this interview. All right, well today we are headed to the Oregon Coast Dunes for some sandboarding, a really fun activity that my two daughters and I have really enjoyed the last three years on trips to Florence and Honeyman State Park. To talk all things sandboarding, we have the perfect guest today. 
Lon Beal, also known as Dr. Dune, is the owner and operator of Sandmaster Sandboarding and Venomous Sandboards in Florence. He's the president of the Dune Riders International, the governing body for national and international sandboard competitions. Hey, Lon, thanks for joining us today. Oh, thank you for inviting me, Zach. I'm proud to be here. Okay, so on this episode, Lon and I are going to start by talking about kind of how to get out on the sand, everything you need to know about that. And then the second half, we'll get into some of the history, which dates all the way back to ancient Egypt. So Lon, let's start here. In really simple terms, can you kind of describe what a sandboard is, how it works? Sure. A sandboard is very similar to any other board sport, surfing, skateboarding, snowboarding, where you're on upright on a plank sliding down in our case a sand dune gotcha okay well imagine somebody comes in to your shop to get a rental you know what are you going to give to them like how does it come together you know i when i've walked into your shop like you've got a bunch of sandboards on the wall there's there's the wax you kind of get a tutorial in go is that is that pretty much how it works yeah that's how we do it a lot of people are repeats and don't need as much detail but for newbies and those who maybe need a refresher, we're more than happy to walk them through it, explain the boards, explain how to strap in, how to stand, how to maneuver, how to wax the board correctly, which is critical. They got to get the waxing right. So we're more than happy to share that with them. Uh, some, some people have more interest in uh, the technical aspects of it, and we're more than happy to share that with them too. So we kind of take each uh, visitor uh, in turn and uh, give them what they came to get. Yeah, and can you talk a little bit about how that wax interacts with it? Because, you know, I think you've mentioned this in, in other interviews, but I think a lot of us have tried to take, like, a sled and take it down a sand dune and other, you know, things like that. It doesn't work so well. But with, you know, your setup with the wax, with the bindings, with the board, it works really well. So can you talk about, like, you know, how, why it works as well as it does with the method that you have? Well, the wax itself is formulated specifically for sandboarding and where other board sports use wax for uh, completely opposite reasons like for surfing you use surf wax to stick to the top of the board well sandboard wax is made as a lubricant to slide on the bottom of the board and mm -hmm. uh, often we see other board sport enthusiasts come and they they try to translate what they know about wax to sandboarding, it just doesn't work like that. With sandboarding, uh, the base material is so hard that it, it has to be harder than the grains of sand, otherwise the sand will just grip it. But it's so hard that it wants to glide anyway. So what the wax does is allow it to break free from that initial grab of friction. After that, you're pretty much riding on air. So minimal amount of wax is needed for it to break loose. Mm -hmm. And there's that, that buffering part at the top. How important is that buffering top? Because I've tried to do it a few times without it. It doesn't seem to work as well. Well, as you get better at it, you start buffing it while it's on your feet. Like you're strapped into the board, you wax the board, and you kind of do a little dance back and forth. Because <laughs> then you, you can, yeah, it's, it's, it's cute to watch, believe me. <laughs> but you can feel when it's ready, when it's polished out and it's ready to go that way. But for beginners, we show them, you know, buff it right on the sand, you know, back and forth, just like you would buff a shoe. Uh, just a few seconds, just all that does is it, it evens out the wax and polishes it in, makes it a little easier to start. 
You know, for us, once we pick up the board, you know, one of my favorite things about your shop is you got the park just, just right outside. So you can, you know, get a little tutorial and then go and try it. You know, we climb up the dunes, the various sizes, and just kind of slide down. We fall a lot, but that's okay because it's sand. I mean, is that usually how people just get started or would you suggest something else? No, that's the wisest path because when they come into the store, they've already seen the dunes. When they pull into our driveway, they see the dunes are right there at the back of our lot. And to go and make their, their first few runs or take a lesson there on those dunes, um, get their feet wet, so to speak, is, is wise because if they do have a problem or they want to swap a board or they're not quite getting the waxing right, the store is right there. So within a few seconds, they're back in the store and, hey, Lon, what am I doing wrong? And we can walk them through it. Yeah. And I should mention, you also have, you know, sand sleds, which which can be fun for a lot of different stuff. Does I mean, does, do the sand sleds come into play a lot of times when maybe it's smaller kids, you know, and parents and they want to get them down, but they don't want to crash or how, how do the sand sleds figure into it? Yeah, I think sand sleds, uh, their popularity has just skyrocketed lately because it's very safe. You don't you don't need any skill to sit down and ride the sled and because you're already on the ground. I mean, if you do tumble off you're not taking a fall you're just taking a tumble so we've seen the sleds open the doors to uh maybe younger riders and older riders alike because it's a safer way to glide down the dune yeah for sure and you, you get a lot of speed too so it's it's pretty fun even in and of itself we usually get a couple boards and then the sand sled just for kind of that change of pace and you know just having a little fun and getting some speed um, you know, can you talk about some of the moves that you can do on the sandboard? So once, once you're up there, you know, it's reminiscent of snowboarding, I suppose, but you know, there's a little carving, there's just trying to stay up. So what are the, what are the basic moves that you can do once you kind of get used to standing up on the board? Well, a lot of people like to do switch tricks where they're bringing the tail end around to the front. And that's probably the first other than little jumps, you know, that's probably the first real trick that most sandboarders will learn. Um, and then you start pushing it a little further, doing a full 360 so that you make it a full spin on the board. That's pretty common. We see that happen a lot. Because sand is so soft, as you mentioned, Zach, um, a lot of the riders are more likely to try aerials, flips and spins in the air, up in the air, because when they fall, well, hey, it's just sand. It's like landing on a mattress. You know, you've got one of those jumps, uh, or last time we visited, you had one of the jumps out there. Do, do the biggest jumps, like, are they typically jumps you put out there? Are there any natural features that you turn into jumps, or what's the dynamic there? Uh, both, actually. If you're in an area like uh, uh, that has dune grass that's built up, you'll find natural jumps pretty much everywhere. And then you tend to groom it a little bit, maybe, you know, add a little more sand uh, to the lead up to give you a little bit more of a, a, a gradual up, you know, up the ramp. But for the, the pro competitions, uh, they're man-made ramps and they're big. So the, the guys are doing, <laughs> you know, 50 foot back flips off of those. Gotcha. All right. Well, so along with the uh, park that is just outside the shop, you know, we love to go to the dunes at, at Honeyman State Park above the lake. You know, it's great because it has a lot of different sizes of dunes. And then, you know, when the girls make it down, they not only get some, you know, speed, they feel accomplished. There's a lake right there for the swim. So I'd assume Honeyman is a, is a big place for riding. But what are some of the best places around Florence or the Oregon coast that are, are good for sandboarding? 
Well, I would say that Honeyman is the most popular. And mm-hmm. uh, just just for the uh, for you, your information, Zach, uh, we take a radar gun out there when we would have competitions, and we're clocking the guys up there about thirty five miles an hour. Oh now, wow! Mo- yeah, it's it's that's that's highway speed. You know, it's <laughs> yeah, <laughs> it's uh, um, not real common that we see a beginners hitting those kind of speeds, but the pros they'll do thirty plus pretty consistently. Now, Honeyman is probably the most popular, and there are natural jumps, and a lot of people don't realize that on the backside of Honeyman, there's long trails or chutes, and and some of them have jumps at the bottom, and there's a little steeper, so you're going to get a little more speed on the backside, and one of the nice things about the backside is the crowds don't really know much about it, so you usually have it all to yourself, and it's usually blocking the wind on a windy day, so... That's a popular spot, too, and I think I just gave up a secret spot just now. <laughs> okay, so when you talk about the back side of it, though, I mean, you know, you get to the top of that dune above the lake, and you can see the diff- the other dunes out in the distance. Are you talking about those or ones you can drive to just on the, on the other side of the park? No, the dunes that you see from the top are off-road area. We don't like to ride there because the sand is a little dirty. It's got rubber particles and exhaust particles. Plus, you got vehicles flying over the top who knows who they're going to land on sure the backside of honeyman like if you're at the top of the dune looking down at the lake if you wander off to your left just a little ways maybe uh, 100 150 feet then drop down there's an area that's uh, very known to the local riders so you got to kind of look for it but once you know where it's at you'll, you'll find it very easily I assume that that's kind of the way it is for a lot of riding, though. Like, there's got to be a million. I mean, the dunes are huge out there. There's got to be a million fun, secret spots. Is that kind of the fun of it, is finding new places and new spots? Well, yeah. um, As the locals, we kind of have a a, a good handful of secret spots, you know, and we're kind of stingy about who we share them with. (laughs) Sure. But uh, it was surprising. Uh, We took a helicopter up one year and just wandered around the area to see you know, what was actually rideable. And it turned out there was pockets of dunes all over the forest. Uh, you would never know it was there if you weren't up in the air. So we used those uh, as, well, we've done some TV shows and stuff there, but we use those as our kind of our, our secret spots. And uh, I'd say, Zach, you know, with a 40-mile stretch of dunes, there's probably a thousand places to ride. Oh, wow. Okay. That makes sense, though. That makes sense. Well, one thing I wanted to quiz you on is uh, is conditions. So, you know, um, when I've headed out there, typically the sand is really dry. You know, you sink into it, and that's kind of the fun part of it. Like, it's fun to kind of sink down into the sand and do little turns. Um, but on our last trip, there was a little bit of uh, moisture under the, the subsurface, and it makes things kind of sticky. So how do you navigate that sort of wetness or dryness and what makes for the best conditions because you look i mean this is the coast it gets a lot of rain right right yeah that's that's a common uh, issue well a few years back we developed a board for wet sand it's specifically for wet sand so when the sand is saturated it's actually raining you know when the sand is saturated and the the dry boards for dry sand aren't sliding well the wet boards do phenomenally so we have boards for dry sand and we have boards for wet sand but when it's right in between, that's when it's a problem. You either want it wet or dry, yeah. Yeah, damp, damp isn't so great. How is the how are the two boards different? Like what are the mechanics that allow 
it's one to work on wet sand and one to work on dry. It's entirely the base material. Uh, the base material for dry sand is very hard, very slick. Well, you know, you, you've seen mm -hmm. it. Uh, the base material for wet sand is more like uh, you would use on a snowboard because the snowboard base material is for frozen water. So that would make sense. Ours is just a similar material, but polished very, very slick. Okay. When you get good at sandboarding, you, you know, you've mentioned this a little bit, but what's, what's the high end? You've talked about the pros, you've talked about big jumps and stuff like that, um, but who are the guys who are really pushing it? Uh, where is this happening? Like, just give me a reader's digest on like, that next level of higher end sandboarding. Uh, I would say what I'm seeing the most impressive riding is coming from South America. Brazil, Peru, Chile. Uh, these guys are just doing everything they're doing on snow, they're doing on sand. We mm -hmm. saw a real rush and a real uh, increase in advanced tricks here in the U.S. over the last 20 years, and now it's kind of, it's kind of faded off. It, it, it seems that here in the U.S., people would rather do sandboarding for recreational reasons, not competition reasons. But the South Americans are, are very driven for competition. So we see them pushing the, uh, uh, the advancement in tricks. Uh, I'd say it's, it's, it's pretty much South America is, is owning it right now. Okay. This is a worldwide sport. I mean, you, you've talked to, you know, in the past about how, you know, you can do it in all, it all over the world. But has it always been like that? Is it on a, uh, on a growth trajectory now? Did it grow? Did it have a boom period and then has like plateaued? I'm just curious, like as somebody who's covered whitewater kayaking, seen boon and bust and same with other recreation sports, like what's been the trajectory of sandboarding as far as how many people are out doing it? Well, back when I was first getting in, and I have to give a lot of credit to the internet, and uh, I, was, I was getting more serious about making sandboard gear, sandboardy, sandboards themselves, the design and all. And, of course, got online. I wasn't a real believer in the Internet back then. You know, I, I just had no experience with it. But one of my crew said, yeah, let's, let's, let's build a website. Let's take a look. So I said, okay, well, I'll give it a try. And we did a search online for sandboarding. Zach, there was zero hits. I mean, <laughs> nothing. There was nothing at all. So we bought Sandboard.com. That's how we got it. And that was the first website. And from that point on, it just grew and grew and grew. Okay. So it's been, uh, it's been something that's grown in recent decades. Like the growth period is happening kind of now and over the, and in recent decades? Yeah. Uh, we opened the website in 95. And from that point on, uh, now, I mean, if you do a search, you'll see, you know, you know, millions of hits. Mm -hmm. But uh, from that point on, uh, we started also, because now people could find us all over the world, you know, where prior, there's no way you wouldn't know. And we found little pockets of sandboarders, uh, you know, two or three friends that were riding in Australia, in Egypt, in South America, in Mexico, and started to gel. You know, things were coming together and we were starting to communicate with each other. And it wasn't too long after that we started having competitions and doing demos um, all over the U.S. and down into Mexico, up into Canada. And from there, it just kind of spread all over the world. What about in Oregon? Like, I mean, is this considered, is the coast and, you know, the Florence area considered a hub of sandboarding? Is it uh, a little off the trail or where, where are the hot spots and how does Oregon stack up? Oh, we're absolutely the hub. I'd say, uh, though we're not doing 
the major competitions, you know, the, the, as advanced uh, sandboard tricks that they're doing in South America, we introduced this sport to more people in one year than all the other locations put together. So we actually have been proclaimed this, the sandboarding capital of the world. So it's kind of our claim to fame. And uh, it's it's still growing. We, we're seeing about 20,000 visitors here at Sandmaster Park each each year now. Wow. Wow, that's big. So my kids wanted me to ask this question, and I know it's, I'm sure it's one you get a lot, but they were wondering if you could ever work with state parks to install a tow rope or a lifted honeymoon, or, you know, is climbing up and, like, getting that working on your legs, like, part of the sandboarding experience, like, kind of embracing that? Like, are there any lifts anywhere in the world, or is that, would that be, like, you know, not the way to do it? Well, you know, it's funny you should ask that, because I'd say, you know, on a daily basis, we get asked that at least, you know, half a dozen <laughs> times. You know, yeah. Where's the chairlift? When are you going to do a chairlift? Now, as far as like state parks go, we we they're never going to let us do that. Sure. But on private property, I mean, we put up uh, stairs and and uh, such. You know, it's it's at pri on private dunes, uh, in particular the uh, uh, Three Rivers Casino here. We we set up a stairway so the guys could climb up on the stairs and then ride down, hit the jump, and uh, for the competitions. But there's a couple places that actually do have lifts and there's one in china that has a, a sand resort they're doing kind of a makeshift sand sledding but they have a chairlift system that takes them up to the top the problem with it zach is sand is constantly shifting so what <laughs> okay. is what is appropriate one season may be completely wrong the next season you got to pull everything up and move it now <laughs> we kind of liken sandboarding to surfing for every ride in, they have to paddle out. Mm -hmm. so yeah, that us, makes every ride down, you hike back up. All right, well, we're going to take a quick break to hear from our sponsors. When we return, we're going to talk a little bit about the history of the sandboarding and more about their development. So stay with us. I'm Tiffany Roddy with Roseburg Forest Products. As a professional forester, I was drawn to Oregon by the trees and the vastness of Oregon's majestic outdoors. I'm proud to work for a family-owned, fully integrated wood products company with a deep commitment to our industry and our communities. Roseburg's sustainably managed timberlands are open for recreation and provide natural wood products that help make people's lives better from the ground up. We are proud members of AFRC, sponsor of the Explore Oregon podcast. Learn more at amforest.org. This message is brought to you by Visit Tillamook Coast. On the Tillamook Coast, we've cared for our forests, farmlands, beaches, and waterways for generations. It's in our DNA, and we bet it's in yours too. While visiting, help us care for our coast. Place trash in garbage cans, pick up after your pet, stay on trails, respect private property, and follow beach fire rules, which means extinguishing fires with water while also checking local rules to avoid igniting wildfires. Tillamook Coast welcomes your visit, and we hope that you'll become a temporary local while here. A few ways to do that include pitching in on a beach cleanup or taking a guided kayak tour to hear about ways to protect bays and rivers. There are science hikes to take, 
nature preserves and marine reserves to explore, or you can visit a farm, a commercial fishing dock, or even stop by a fish hatchery. Find out about all these options and how to care for our coast at tillamacoast.com slash caringforourcoast. Once again, it's tillamacoast.com slash caringforourcoast. All right, well, welcome back. All right, let's jump back in time a little bit. One thing I've seen pointed out quite a little bit in, uh, you know, reading about sandboarding is that it goes back to the time of ancient Egypt. So do you mind giving us a little historical perspective on where sandboarding comes from or has existed in the past? Sure. Well, a lot of uh, people in different, in different countries claim to have invented sandboarding. And what we've seen is there's no hard proof to who actually started it and in what country. Now, there's some legends about the Egyptians had a, a uh, festival where they would slide down the dunes on planks of wood. But we've also seen the same thing in Mongolia, where it was si similar, a, a festival type situation where they would have a big feast and then they would slide down. We've seen videos of elephants sliding down the dunes on their bellies. So, you know, who actually started sandboarding? That's a tough call. But here in the U.S., the earliest photographs I've seen of sandboarding are like in the mid-60s. And then when we started developing boards, we actually, and, and back then I, I got to point out that a lot of people were sliding on surfboards or uh, water skis or skateboards with the wheels off. When we started taking sandboarding seriously, we started developing boards specifically for the sand that would be the most maneuverable, uh, the mm -hmm. safest, and give us the best speed. So I, I have to say that as far as who actually invented the modern sandboard, it was probably our group because I didn't see anything like that anywhere else in the world until we started doing it that way. Now, now don't get me wrong. Other people were sliding down the sand. They just weren't sliding down the sand on a sandboard. Mm. So since you, you know, played such a big role in developing it as a modern sport, how did you first get interested in it? Like, who was your introduction? What was your introduction to it? Well, I was, I grew up in the Mojave Desert, not too far from Death Valley. And I was uh, a Boy Scout. And our troop would go over and we'd camp there fairly often, like on an annual basis. And there's dunes right there. So uh, it was only natural. You climb up on the dunes. It's, I think anyone that stood on the top of the dune hasn't had that urge to slide down or roll down or leaps and bounds or whatever. And I'd say that's kind of what got it started, you know, and there was a lot of trial and error, cardboards and plastics and different metals and stuff. And most of it did not work well at all. It was still fun. Well, when snowboarding came along and kind of popped loose and we saw how, how popular it became so quickly and, of course, in the back of my mind, I'm thinking, well, when is somebody going to do sandboarding like that? When are they going to take sandboarding to that level and so on? And uh, I just woke up one morning and said, I guess it's going to have to be me. And so from <laughs> that point on, that's pretty much it. From that point on, uh, I just dedicated to developing the sport. And what was the big technological things that you did with uh, venomous sandboards? Like, like what, what did you bring to it that wasn't there before? Was it the surface? Was it putting, you know, those bindings on it? Take me through kind of that development. Okay, well, all the above. One of the things that we saw is because people were using 
boards from other sports, from writing other types of materials. We approached it more like uh, uh, specifically for the sand grains. You're not writing on a solid like ice. You're not writing on concrete. We're talking about tiny little particles, you know, trillions upon trillions of tiny little particles. And the characteristics of the sand are really more like a liquid, more like surfing. So we started approaching it more like we're riding a liquid instead of riding a solid like snow or ice. And that was a big change. That allowed us to maneuver a lot better. The shape of the board uh, interacting with the sand was much more effective than, than it had ever been before. Now, the material of the base, the base material on the very bottom, uh, we tried, oh, man, I got a pile of boards that did not work. I still have them. <laughs> and uh, it got a little better, got a little better. We started realizing, again, understanding you're not riding a board. You're riding tiny little grains and then approached it with a material that would interact properly with those tiny little grains. And that was a big jump. The speeds just came right up. Now, once the waxes were developed and on some, some of the medium size or larger dunes, uh, and uh, the guys are hitting 60 miles an hour. And I think that that's entirely because the wax took them there. And then again, that was a lot of trial and error. We tried a lot of different materials, a lot of different chemistry to get something that would give it that kind of speed. So I'd say, you know, it was it, it was all three. You know, it was the the uh, the uh, design of the board, the base of the material, the wax. Oh, and the bindings. Now, the bindings aren't going to make the board go any faster. What they do is give you more control over the board and more safety for your ankles and knees. Yeah, yeah. And so were you doing the, the chemistry yourself? Like, or, or were you trying the different things that you, you saw and that were out there? Like, would somebody say, oh, you know, I, I like this wax. Like, and would you, would you just kind of try everything or did you develop them yourself? Well, we tried everything that seemed reasonable. Um, I had a lot of help. My father was a chemist. Oh. And he gave us all some insight, so we, we didn't make a whole lot of uh, mistakes. You know, we already had the right direction. We just were perfecting it. But uh, now and then something comes along and someone says, hey, you know, try this. If it makes sense, we'll give it a try. But at this point, the waxes that we're using, the wax that you got when you were here, Zach, is still the best stuff on the market. You know, it's it's what the world speed record is set on, and it's it's still, not, we haven't seen anything better come along. Gotcha. Well, what's, I'm curious about the relationship between sandboarding and snowboarding, because you, you mentioned that that was, you know, part of a spark for you, but they seemed like kind of different things. So, I mean, how would you, how do you see them evolving or not evolving, you know, together? Like, are, do you see them as being linked or do you see them as being more separate? I, uh, I, you know, they're, they're very similar in a lot of ways. You know, you're strapped onto a board, you're sliding down a slope. That's, that's pretty much, you know, the, the basics, but one of the nice things that we find with sandboarding is, and you can use a snowboard on the sand, you just need a different base material, but it's not quite, uh, I'd say, as efficient as a true sandboard. Mm -hmm. the, the sweet thing about sandboarding is you don't have to wait for a winter season. You don't have to wait for the waves. The sand is always there. You got a year-round opportunity to sandboard. And uh, you don't need any special gear. You need a board, that's it. It's like skateboarding or surfing. Once you have the board, it's free every day. Go ride every day if you want. Um, so I'd say, you know, I'd say if you can sandboard, 
you're halfway to snowboarding. If you can snowboard, you're halfway to sandboarding. Within an <laughs> afternoon, you have the other sport down pretty good. So, like, there's a lot of the uh, mechanics that are the same, but then the the techniques may differ and the opportunities differ. Yeah, and, you know, you, you mentioned about, you know, it, it's become almost harder in some cases. You know, we've had some warmer winters. There's a little bit less snow uh, up in the mountains. You have to wait a little bit longer. Do you see, you know, uh, do you see a lot of crossover from guys who are frustrated? You know, maybe the snow isn't out there. Do you see them coming over to sandboarding? Do you see sandboarding as a growth potential into the future? Just because, like you said, it's available year round? Absolutely. Uh, I think global warming is going to help us out. <laughs> you know, I'll tell you, and it's the same situation with surfing. Like in a lot of surf breaks, there's dunes close by, if not actually right on the beach. And we've seen uh, an increase in surfers that they get out. It's too flat. There's nothing to ride. And they, they head for the dunes. The dunes are right there and they, they take up sandboarding too. So I, I see it kind of a, as a backup sport for some of the other board sports. But it's definitely its own boss, too. It's taking people into board sports that have never ridden any boards before just because sandboarding was so appealing and uh, the falls are so soft. You know, one thing that, that strikes me is that it's also fairly pretty affordable, you know, compared to other recreation sports. I mean, you get like how much is a good board? And then once you've got it, you're kind of got it. But what like cost-wise, if you want to get into it, like what, what are you looking at? Well, a complete board, ready to go, bindings and everything, you're looking at about 200 to 275. Uh, so it's, it's a little bit more than a skateboard, cheaper than a surfboard, cheaper than a snowboard setup. But uh, we see the boards lasting, as long as we're not running them over rocks or misusing them, we see these boards lasting a good 20 years. Yeah, well, that, and that's that's the thing. I talked to one of your employees about that, and he just pointed that out. Like, once you've got it, you've got it. It almost reminds me of basketball in a weird way in that, like, you've got a ball and you're good to go, uh, and you're kind of always good to go. Yeah, that's that's you you called it. That's the way it is. You've got a board, you're ready to go. Okay, well, you've obviously been around sandboarding, have a passion for it for a long time. you got a great nickname, Dr. Dune. So, so how did you get that? Well, back in the early days... Um, I was, of course, learning as much as I could about the sand, the dynamics of the sand and itself and the shape of the dunes and what shapes the dunes and what makes good sand, what makes a good dune and so on. And the health of the dunes and the guys, uh, a lot of the pro riders, they just said like, she made you like the doctor of the dunes, you know, you're out here <laughs> checking the health of the dunes. So it just kind of stuck with me. And now a lot of the guys, they just call me doc and I, I, <laughs> Don't know where it came from, but I guess it, I guess it's just because of my concern for the dunes and the health of the dunes, and it uh, it stuck with me, Doctor Dune. Yeah. All right. Well, as we circle for a landing here, I just wanted to give you the floor a little bit. Ask you know, you know, why take up sandboarding? I mean, out in Florence, there's a ton to do: fishing, hiking, shopping, mushroom hunting, dune buggies. You know, why why do the sandboarding? Why why dive into that? Well, I think one of the things that makes it well a number of the things that makes it so appealing is as you mentioned, it's affordable, it's enviro-friendly, it's very healthy, it's a good, healthy activity, it's very safe, and it's a whole lot of fun. Well, that's a good answer. All right, well, once again, I've been talking to Lon Beal, the owner and operator of Sandmaster Park in Florence. Thanks so much for uh, taking some time here, Lon. 
You're welcome, Zach. You know, anytime you need some uh, info on the sand, I, I think you know where to find me. All right, well, that's about all the time we have left in today's show. If you liked what you've heard, check out our catalog of more than 60 episodes featuring Oregon's most beautiful and interesting places at statesmanjournal.com slash explore, along with Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Stitcher, and Spotify. We'd once again like to thank our sponsors, beginning with the American Forest Resources Council. AFRC supports responsible forestry on public lands throughout the Pacific Northwest for our environment, for our economy, and for the future. Learn more at amforest.org. We'd also like to thank Visit Tillamook Coast. If you want to plan a trip out there, you can check out their outdoor recreation map that shows all the places to hike, swim, boat, and camp. You can find that map at tillamookcoast.com slash recreation hyphen map. Once again, that's tillamookcoast.com slash recreation hyphen map. And thanks to the Oregon Parks and Recreation Department, which stresses the importance of recreating responsibly and leaving no trace in Oregon's outdoors. Thanks for listening, and we hope you'll join us next time for the next edition of the Explore Oregon podcast.